So I go over there and I'm like, storyboards? I know storyboards. And I, again, I've never done a professional interview in my life. And I'm just blabbing away. I, I hand him my, you know, like my crappy portfolio, which isn't really a portfolio. It's just a, you know, a collection of drawings. He then looks up at me and he's like, how old are you? And I'm like, I'm 19, but I'll be 20 in how many months if that makes any difference, right? So he starts laughing. And so he's like, well, listen, he's like, I'm looking for a storyboard revisionist, which is basically the most bottom level of, of, of animation storyboarding. So anyways, uh, long story short, he gives me a test. I start doing the test. Wednesday comes about, I'm still working on it. And you know what I did? I stopped. I stopped because I talked myself out of it. I, I, I thought that, that they were just being nice to me and that maybe, you know, in a couple years, I'll reach out again. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Do something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of. It doesn't matter how badly you got beat. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go with your gut. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. My name is Jay Oliva. I am the CEO, owner of Lex and Otis Studios. We primarily do animated content as well as live action. And I also do storyboards. I've directed. I'm also a showrunner. Um, and I basically work in almost every job in animation. I want to start actually near uh, the beginning. Can you tell me like some of your earliest memories growing up in Orange County? You know, I have an older brother and an older sister who are 10 years and eight years older than me. So I really didn't have anybody to play with at home. So what kept me company was I watched cartoons uh, and I drew. I drew not because I knew that this was going to be a career. I just drew because I was bored, right? And I loved I loved watching cartoons. And I used to do things where once we had a Betamax, I would actually record my favorite animated shows and I would basically freeze it and I'd try to trace it. Again, this was, you know, the 80s. There was no internet back then um i would go to the library and i would i would check out you know how to draw 50 animals right by lee j ames right where you would draw two circles and then the next step would be a fully rendered horse and you had to just figure out how that happened right um so i i basically taught myself how to draw so you you were obviously had this really like deep interest in animation how was that interest received within your community and and like your peers as you can tell i'm asian so my parents always told me don't go into art because there is no money in art being the youngest of three you know my brother was supposed to be the lawyer my sister was supposed to be the dentist and i was supposed to be the doctor none of us ended up being any of that um <laughs> but up until going to college you know i went to school uh as a bio major you know at loyola marymount university i was fully set on being a doctor i wanted to be a pediatrician um now during high school is when i kind of my my art style kind of came into its own in a sense that like I started drawing a lot more. I was, uh, I got into comic books. I would basically use comic books to try to learn how to draw. 
I remember um, I went to a comic book shop and it was John Romita Sr. was there and he was looking at portfolios. I didn't have a portfolio because at the time I think I might have been 15 or 16, but I did bring some of my drawings and, and I went in line and I got his signature and he looked at my stuff and he was the first professional to ever tell me that I had a future. That he said, this stuff looks amazing, this looks great, keep at it. And, you know, for a kid that young, I think that really gave me the boost that I needed to really think that, hey, you know what? I can pursue this. I can I can do this, right? And again, getting it from John Romita Sr. And he was a nice old man. I don't know if he was just being nice to me, but, but those words really kept me going, right? And I think from that point on, my growth as an artist just grew exponentially. Just even some words of encouragement can change a person's life. I also want to talk about um, being like a, a first generation American and coming from a Filipino background and also what it meant to be Filipino within Orange County. Cause I, I mean, I've heard that there was like, like some, some gang activity when you oh, were yeah. growing up that you had to, to navigate. And I was wondering if you could tell me how you navigated that and, and also some of the cultural context that you were growing up around. So uh, it's really interesting, um, you know, growing up um, in Orange County, I really didn't really notice my the fact that I was Asian, right? I just thought everybody just looked different and I never really noticed race until I think I got into high school. You know, I think that was like during the whole Boys in the Hood kind of time when there was still during when the Crips and the Bloods were still kind of around. You couldn't wear certain colors. When you went to the mall, you had to be careful because you know, people would come up to you and ask you where you're from, like which, you know, which gang you're from or what you had to, you had to belong somewhere, right? Here's the thing, it's like, I didn't have like a really hard life. I mean, I think I was one, I was very fortunate because, because I was an artist, I kind of got along with everybody, right? I got along with the jocks, I got along with the geeks, I got along with everybody because I, I would basically, you know, draw stuff for everybody and everybody wanted me to draw things for them. And then whenever there was a house party or something, I would draw the flyers, right? Uh, and, and so, you know, I never really got pulled in too deep, but there were a lot of my friends who got, you know, um, you know, altercations with a lot of, you know, gangs and whatnot. Could you tell me like the closest you, like a, like a, maybe a concrete story of the closest you felt that you got to those, to those groups? We would be at a house party and there would be a drive-by and they would shoot up the house, right? Uh, there would be times we'd be playing, you know, my friends and I would be playing basketball and then, you know, some heated argument and the guy comes back with a gun. I look back on it and, and to me it's normal, but now being older and, and being so far away from that life, it, it's surreal. And I think my point was, is that like back then, you know, in order, in order to survive was really just to, you know, have friends, right? And, and, and those friends, you get associated with them and... And now suddenly you're a gang, right? In some people's eyes. And somebody has beef with somebody in your friend group. And and now you've got two groups of guys who are now going to fight each other at first sight. You know, I mean, there are times when I've had friends get, you know, go to the mall and they get jumped because they just happen to be friends with another guy who's from another crew who doesn't like our crew. Four security cameras were taping simultaneously in this crowded pool hall in El Monte, California as tension begins to build between two rival gangs. There was a special on the most dangerous gangs in, in whatever um, prison, right? 
But one of them they, they covered was this one group of guys who I had known of. 18-year-old Lay Mech, a member of the so-called Asian Boys, carries a handgun. He stares disrespectfully at a group of his sworn rivals, the Wa Ching. The reason why they're in jail now is when they were like 16, 17 years old, they got into an altercation playing pool. One of the guys left, went to his car, and came back into the pool hall with a, with a, with a pistol. Everybody ran out. Uh, I, I, I believe, from what I remember, a couple of my buddies were there, and they ran out. And, and in, this, in this documentary, they show the, the, the video footage. And so the guy that this guy had got into altercation with, he hid in, underneath one of the tables. And so the guy goes over and shoots him in the face, just literally just murders him, right, over a pool game or whatever. Anyways, uh, this guy and, and his group of other friends or his crew ended up getting all arrested for that as well as some other kind of crimes, you know. And they're all in jail still. So they were arrested when they were like 17 years old. And they're my age, right? To like 45. And and it's wild that they've spent more time in jail than they have been alive, free, all because of being stupid during this time. So why you, did you think you escaped that life? I got a job. I was 19. I was going to Loyola Marymount University. Right about the time I was a sophomore, I got offered a job to work at Marvel Films. Uh, they said, hey, can you, you know, do you want to do storyboards? And I had no clue. Wait, how did they even find you? Like, <laughs> okay, so here's the, okay, so let me, let me set this up. So... I went to San Diego Comic-Con in 1995, very first time. I went there as a bright-eyed, like, young artist, hoping to get a landed job. Now, mind you, I was already still in school, you know, to do medicine, but, uh, you know, my heart was in drawing. At the time, Marvel Image, all the Dark Horse was hiring artists, you know, to work on so many books. Remember, this was the, the kind of golden age of, of, you know, comic books, independence, as well as, you know, the, the big ones. And so I went to, I went to San Diego Comic-Con, I showed my portfolio around and I got some good feedback, but I remember I showed it to one of the studios. I think it might've been Extreme Studios. It was Rob Liefeld studio. And and whoever looked at it was telling me that like, oh, you need to work on this, this, and basically just ripped up my stuff. How did that feel? It, it kind of like destroyed my my dreams of becoming, remember, uh, you know, when John Romina had seen it, but his words had basically kept me going. I hear this now and it kind of destroyed me. Like I, I, I thought, okay, you know what? This isn't meant for to be, you know, I'm just going to go back to school and kind of just buckle down and do it. We'll be right back after this break. Hello, everyone. This is Matt Fernandez, your friendly neighborhood audio producer. Valentine's Day is fast approaching. Now, you could celebrate by taking your significant other out for dinner and drinks at a restaurant or bar, but that can get expensive. And, let's face it, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Why not surprise your lucky lover by making them a classic and classy cocktail from the comfort of your own home? To help with that, let me kick it off to audio editor and fine dining connoisseur, Nicholas Guzman. The Manhattan is a strong, sweet, aromatic drink that's easy to make and the perfect cocktail for Valentine's Day. Start with a tall mixing glass and add crushed ice. Pour two ounces of rye or Canadian whiskey, followed by one ounce of sweet vermouth and two dashes of Angostura bitters. Stir it all together, then pour into a martini glass or a coupe. Garnish with a Luxardo Maraschino cherry and enjoy! Enjoy! 
Simple, delicious, and a heartfelt way to share a special moment with that special someone. And if the night should take a more intimate turn, why not set the mood by sharing an episode of Finding Founders? The inspirational stories and words of wisdom are sure to leave them begging for more. Now, back to the podcast. Why did you give up when, when that was said? And now, let me set this up. I was a starving college student. What, what, what it was, was I was going to school. I was working, I was selling computers at Computer City. I think my hourly rate was $3.50 or $3 something. Like I wasn't making enough money to eat on a regular basis. So I was eating every other day, right? So I learned to survive off of Top Ramen and like baguettes that you would buy at Bonds. The real starving artists. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Uh, my cousin gives me a call one time and uh, he said, hey, there's a job opportunities expo for animation at the Universal Studios. You know, do you want to go? And, uh, you know, I was like, well, how much does it cost? And, uh, and he's like, it's like 20 bucks to get in. Now, mind you, I was making $3.50 an hour or $3 something. That is like almost like a couple days worth of work, right? And so I, I was like, I didn't want to go, but he talked me into it. So I, I went, and this is where, you know, whenever I tell this story, I try to make it clear to people who want to break in that your career can go anywhere, but you have to be open to seeing opportunities that are in front of you. So anyways, I go, I get to this place, and I get out, and I start walking to the to the hotel, and my cousin's like, well, where's your portfolio? And I was like, I don't have a portfolio. I mean, I was 19. I don't, I don't have a portfolio. I wasn't planning on being an artist. I don't, I never I have random drawings. And so he's like, well, I'll just grab some drawings. And so I went to my trunk. And I just grabbed a handful of, I draw on a loose leaf paper, right? Like, you know, um, Xerox paper. So I, I grabbed a handful of that. I grabbed a manila folder that I had in there that had somebody else's name on it. And I just scratched it out and I stuffed it in there. So I go into, you know, the Job Opportunities Expo, and it's like, I've never been into any place like this. And my cousin comes over to me, he's like, hey, Marvel Films is, is over on the other side. Why don't you go over there and, and show them your stuff? And I was like, oh, I don't know, remember, I'm 19. But I said, okay, I come over. I had already taken animation, and, and in my animation class, my professor Van Partable had spent, I remember he spent like, maybe like 30 minutes to an hour very briefly talking about storyboards and I filed away storyboards in my head that I'm never going to use this. Like I'm just animating it. Right. So I'm never going to use this information, but I remember that the lesson. So I go over there and I'm like storyboards. I know storyboards. And I, again, I've never done a professional interview in my life and I'm just blabbing away. I, I hand him my, my, my crappy portfolio, which isn't really a portfolio. It's just a, you know, a collection of drawings. My storyboards for my student film for the class I had taken in the fall for animation was in there. He then looks up at me and he's like, how old are you? And I'm like, I'm 19, but I'll be 20 in how many months if that makes any difference, right? So he starts laughing. And so he's like, well, listen, he's like, you know, we, we do, I'm looking for a storyboard revisionist, which is basically the most bottom level of, of, of animation storyboarding. What do you think about working in the valley? So anyways, uh, long story short, he gives me a test. I start doing the test. Wednesday comes about. I'm still working on it. And you know what I did? I stopped. I stopped because I talked myself out of it. I, I, I thought that 
that they were just being nice to me and that maybe, you know, in a couple years, I'll reach out again. Thursday dinner comes around and, and my roommate, Mike, and I go out to dinner and he tells me, how's the test going? And I, and I give him all the excuses. And this is what changed my life. He looked at me and he said, listen, if you do this and they don't like it, that's, then you, you know it, right? I mean, they'll, they'll tell you and it's, it's fine, right? But he said, listen, but if you do this and they like it, this could change your life. And that, those words to today is, is, is what made, gave me the kind of kick in the butt that, that made me go back, to the, go back to my room and I did an all-nighter. I finished the test. I turned it in the next day. And then I was called the following week. The next, the following week, they called me and they said, "We love your test. Would you like to start?" So while I was hired as a revisionist, right, basically what I was doing as a revisionist was I would get the storyboards from the storyboard artists and I would make fixes that the director had asked me. And then it gets shipped overseas and gets animated. At one point, though, I, there was a certain storyboard artist that, like, whenever I got his, his boards, there were so many fixes to the point where I, I, I had to go to the director and said, why do you keep hiring this guy? Because it's, I have to spend so much time fixing it. And he had told me that there aren't a lot of storyboard artists out there that can do action adventure. And I said, by the way, um, you know, how do you get, how do you become a storyboard artist? He's, and he said, well, you know, if you'd like to learn, read this. He gave me the five C's of cinematography and he gave me a stack of storyboards. And he's like, read this book and study this. And so I then said, well, how much do storyboard artists make, by the way? And it was three times as much as I was making as a revisionist. So I said, I got to learn this. And so I spent the next couple of months studying. Like I would read the book, look at the storyboards, read the book and read them. And at some point it clicked in my head, like riding a bike, where I understood the language of film. I understood why you cut to certain shots, why you cut to certain angles. So two years later, I became a director. It was the same thing where I was like, how much do directors make and how do you become a director? So essentially all you're doing is you're looking at the person ahead of you and you're like, hey, how do I do this next step? And they give you the, the materials to do so. You actually, you know, take advantage of those lessons and then you move forward and forward. And so what was directing like for you? It was around that time, about 22, 23, I was directing on quite a few shows at that, that time in 1997, 99 uh, to 99 that my university called me and they said, hey, you know, could you do a presentation to the kids? Because we are starting an animation program and we'd like to get the kids excited about animation. They said, can you come over? So I said, okay. So I came over there and I gave a presentation about storyboarding. I did that twice. On the second time, it was a much bigger crowd. And afterwards, the, the dean of the film and television came over to me and said, you know, you know it was a great presentation. We loved what you did. How do you feel about teaching a class here? And I'm like, you do realize I dropped out and I don't have a teaching credential. Right? You know, they said that, well, we really like the, you know, that you know your material. And of course, you're a director, so you're prominent in, you know, in the, in the field. And that um, I knew, you know, directing pretty well. And so I started teaching in 2000. I taught for about 20 years straight. So now you're really throwing yourself into teaching, but you're also throwing yourself into the industry. And eventually that leads to creating your, your own company. Can you tell me why you did that? In animation, you reach 
kind of like stealing at some point in your career. I was directing, uh, I was working directing a lot of high profile projects, but the only place to go from there was to try to become executive producer or, you know, a showrunner where, or I developed my own show and pitch it. And what happened was that I wanted to get into live action and I was, and I talked to Zack Snyder and I talked to Zack, Zack and I are good friends and I asked Zack one day, I was like, how do I make the jump to live action? He's like, listen, you already have all the skills to be a director. You know, the, the best thing, the fastest way to be a director in live action is to write something and then attach yourself as the director. And so anyways, I was, I was on that path. You know, I was developing quite a few scripts. You know, I was trying to find my exit out of animation. And, and so, you know, Netflix gives me a call and they said, hey, you know, we have a, a show for you. We'd love for you to show run if you're interested. It, it's it's a, it's based on a Filipino comic book, and it's kind of like a crime procedural horror action. So when Netflix offered me this, you know, in my mind is like, am I getting it because of my cultural background? But at the same time, I was like, well, you know what? My filmography is so deep at this point. What was the feeling associated with thinking that you got it because of your? Your cultural background. Well, the thing is, that was the first. That was the first uh, thought, right? And but here's the thing: at that point in my career, it was one of those things where I'm like, you know what? If I if this is an opportunity, I'm getting it because of this. Then fuck it, you know. At that point in my career, I would say that I was one of the top action director directors, you know, in the industry. So I just thought, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to let this bother me because I, this is an opportunity, right? And then, and it wasn't until I finished the show that I realized that how important this show was for the Filipino community and for the Philippines is that we were, I, I took Filipino culture and I made it for the world stage. And when I, when I asked Netflix, you know, I want to start my own studio. Are you cool with that? And they said, okay. And I said, have you done this with anybody else? And they said, no, you're the first one. I was humbled by that because then it just showed that, you know, all of the hard work that I've done over the last 20 plus years culminated in me starting my own studio. It's not the Jay Oliva studio. I'm putting together the studio and I want to build it around us, around the talent. What we're doing here is, is something where we have control of our destiny, of where our career goes, right? We have a chance to choose projects that we want to work on as opposed to say being handed it. Making that decision, where are you today, and and uh, and and what are you most excited for for the future? I started my studio. And we had a very small, you know, crew. I had like maybe ten people. But while I was doing that, I realized how much I loved this. I loved the business side of animation as well as the creative side, and so for me, every time I sell a new show, for me, it gives me another year or two. I get to hang out with my friends. That's how I see it. We're all here to just make, you know, great work. Having that, you know, flexibility as a studio owner has allowed me to kind of navigate, you know, between the big studios. If you look at the quality that I'm doing now with my small crew and everything, it's, it, it, it's about the same, if not better, than what these big studios are doing. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our Chief of Staff and Operations is Jessica Lynn. 
Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Berkel, Matt Fernandez, Nay B. Cannon, Sophia Donner, Maura Lynch, Zoe Maddox, Ashley Jimenez, Michael Chung, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong, with support from Sarah Hobson, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, Jake Wiley, Ibada Thrive, and Mecca Shelton. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Jake Wiley, Jordan Ortiz, and Sanessa Gisley. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Dane, Jonathan Wass, and Diana Marie Kandaza. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.